Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. If you'll please join me in the words for lighting your chalice, they are printed in the order of service and projected above. We light this chalice. Now I'll ask you to please take a deep breath. I don't know if it's the turn in the weather or just the circumstances of this week, but it has felt like a long one to me at least, perhaps for some of you as well. But we have the gift of this time here together to slow down, to breathe, to find our centers again. Take a deep and slow breath. For this space of time, your only job is to be present, to open yourself, to make room for new learnings, for deep thinking, for offered compassion, for love. Hear in this sound all the possibilities of this time together. Breathe and listen. Earlier this week, I found myself sharing with some folks the name Sophia Lyon Foz. Has anyone heard that name before? Very few. Okay. So Sophia Lyon Foz was a writer, a teacher, a religious educator, and an activist, and a Unitarian. She was, in many ways, the grandmother of our ongoing philosophy of religious education in Unitarian Universalism. She thought that children didn't need to be given God or a Bible or any of that, at least not when they were young. What they needed, she said, was a chance to encounter the world, develop a sense of awe, a chance to be curious about the world around them, and to develop their own spiritual understanding. She believed that humans were natural meaning makers who take the inevitable interactions they have with all existence and find truth and meaning within them. And of course, she recognized, as we do now, that that doesn't stop with childhood. We know that. We acknowledge in our mission here that even as adults, we continue to grow in mind and spirit. But growing in mind and spirit is challenging work. It takes a core belief that we still have things to learn. It takes a humility that says, each interaction I have, each person I meet, each moment I experience, maybe there's something for me to learn within these. It's a kind of philosophy that asks us, even as grown-ups, to accept our shortcomings and acknowledge where we have yet to grow. And it asks us to be reverent and awe-filled and grateful for the learnings that come grateful for all the ways that together we can still work toward better understanding. I want to open this morning's service with words from Faz about what it is we do when we come together in religious community. 
She wrote, we gather in reverence before the wonder of life, the wonder of this moment, the wonder of being together so close yet so apart, each hidden in our own secret chamber, each listening, each trying to speak, yet none fully understanding, none fully understood. We gather in reverence before all intangible things that eyes see not nor ears can detect, that hands can never touch, that space cannot hold, and time cannot measure. We gather, as always, to do the sometimes difficult, sometimes painful, but ever vital work of learning and growing. So welcome to this place, this home, where we know that we don't fully understand and we are not yet fully understood. Welcome to this home where we know that we are on a journey that sometimes asks more than we really want to give. Welcome to this home where we know that being together in awe and reverence before the moments and mysteries of life will bring us all closer to truth and understanding. Welcome. Following on Karen's words, we are going to come into our time of quiet and meditation. We do this every Sunday because we are aware that out there in the world we spend so much time attempting to achieve, to get to a goal, to finish, to accomplish. And in here, we take time to sit together in quiet, to be in the moment where we are to let ourselves feel the needs of our deepest heart. And we recognize that sitting side by side with companions, even in silence, builds and nurtures community. We understand that taking the time to sit with the hurts of the world, the fears we share, the joys we know, is a way of affirming our connections, our interdependence, our participation in existence well beyond our own lives. This time together is special time, quiet time, sacred time. So we'll begin by taking deep and slow breaths. And I'll invite you to relax your body into your seat. You can roll your head, your shoulders, if that helps you to settle. Close your eyes if that helps your mind to quiet. From head to toe, try to release the tension wherever you find it in your body. And keep breathing. Try to inhale slowly on a count of three and exhale on a count of three. As you keep breathing, your body relaxed, slowly doing its work of inhaling and exhaling, sink into whichever of your senses you wish. What does the chair feel like beneath you? What noises can you hear outside these walls or within them? What smells are you getting as you inhale and exhale? What 
let the sensations pass through you as you breathe deep and slow. And bring your mind to focus on the energy of this space, on the feeling of being side by side with others. As we come into silence, breathe and use this time to meet the need of your own heart. Take a deep breath into your center. May we each find time every day amidst the noise and busyness of life to connect deeply to our own self, to sit quietly among companions, and to tend to the deepest needs of our hearts. So may it be. So, before I begin the sermon this morning, I'm going to read to you a story that I read to my own children sometimes. It's called The Hug Machine and it's by Scott Campbell, and I'll be projecting the pictures and giving a little description of the pictures as we move through them. So the story begins with a little kid coming over a hill saying, whoa, here I come, I am the hug machine. The next page shows the kid hugging members of their family while saying, I am very good at hugging, the best at hugging. No one can resist my unbelievable hugging. I am the hug machine. Then the child goes out and hugs people in the community, police officers, neighbors that are gardening. And the child is saying, my hugs calm people down, they cheer them up, they make them go completely nuts. I am the hug machine. On the next page, they're hugging a bench, a mailbox, a tree, saying, I hug everything I see. No one escapes the hug machine. Then they hug a bear and say, my hugs make the biggest feel small and a turtle, the smallest feel big. Then a sheep, I hug soft things. A rock, hard things. A truck, square things. A snake, long things. I am the hug machine. On the next page, a little baby is crying and the hug machine says, oh, do you need a hug? I think you do. Hug accomplished. There is nothing the hug machine will not hug. And on the next page is a porcupine. And the porcupine says, what about me? I am so spiky. No one ever hugs me. On the following page, the child is dressed in oven mitts, a catcher's mask, with a pillow strapped to their stomach, and is hugging the porcupine and saying, they are missing out. Then a whale comes. What about me? Surely I am too big for you to hug. But the hug machine gets a ladder, climbs to the top of the whale, and says as they give a sliding hug down the whale's tail, of course not, not for the hug machine. And then we see the child at a table, and he's saying, people often ask what the hug machine eats to keep the hugging energy high. Well, the answer is pizza. The hug machine likes pizza very much. Then an image of the neighborhood with the child zipping all over to give hugs, refueled and ready for action. Hug, 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 hug. The little kid looks tired and is saying, phew, what a tiring day of hugging. The hug machine is exhausted. And the child falls to the ground and their arms reaching toward them. 
hug machine can hug no more. And on the last page, a figure in a dress is holding the child and the hug machine says, oh, why yes, you may hug the hug machine. Hug machine is always open for business. Okay, that's the end of our story. Some of you may recall that earlier in the fall, I mentioned that we are engaging in monthly themes and that this year our themes for the, for the whole year are sort of following the arc of a story. Um, we began with the idea of the prologue in September, the very beginnings of a story as we opened our congregational year with our water ceremony. And then we talked about the story we we're telling around climate change and our opportunity to change that future. We talked about pronouns, that how we choose to position our own narratives matters and is up to each of us. We ended that month of prologue talking about communication, the value of clear and honest speech. In October, our theme was exposition, those moments that occur throughout a story that give us lots of background information that we need. So we talked again about the climate, but especially as it relates to racial justice, a story that more of us need to understand so we can right wrongs. We talked about who we are as a people of faith. We did some history of Unitarian Universalism. We talked about covenant, one of the most basic aspects of UU community life. And at the end of October, you may not have realized it, but we slid quietly into our current theme. Um, if you had a chance to read your e-blast this past week, you know that we're in a five-part series on the senses. And Ron began that at the end of October with a uh, service on hearing, the music service. Last week, we talked a bit about sight, but not physical sight, right? Sight as the deep knowing of our place among the living and the dead, among those that we see and those we do not. And this morning, we continue our senses series, and we move on to touch. I remember, as a young person, being coached in a writing class to use descriptive words, did anyone else ever get told this? Words that would evoke the senses for others. And then much later, as a student of medieval history focused on religious experience and worship, I remember being struck by how carefully worship leaders would use sensory language and how important the engagement of all the senses was in creating effective services in a medieval Christian context. The art on the walls, the smells of the candles burning, the feel of one's knees on the floor, the taste of the communion, the sound of chanting, the deep understanding of a body operating in space and in time. The engagement of our senses, whichever ones are strong for us, because truly each of us have different sense ability, but the engagement of whatever combination of our senses, the evocation of them, helps us to create a fuller and deeper understanding of the thing that we're encountering. This is no less true in our own living as in the books we read. Our experience of the world finds more depth as our senses are engaged. And as Foz believed, and one of our six sources affirms, our experience of the world is vital for developing the meaning, beauty, truth, and understanding of our lives. And yet, so many of us move through our days forgetting to be grateful for the senses we have that help deepen our experience. We move through taking for granted our sense of touch or smell or sight. But each of these 
and other senses besides, can help us to live more deeply into ourselves if we pay more attention. This morning we're talking about touch, but we're talking about it beyond being grateful for this sense that allows us to know the joy of unfettered, tickle-induced laughter. We're going to go beyond remembering the fun of watching a baby experience new textures. We're going to go beyond talking about the safety created by loving hugs. Because touch is complicated. Like all of our senses, others can take advantage of it, and sometimes it can go horribly wrong. Touch is touchy. So I want to ask you, what do you think is the first thing I say to my children after we read that book, The Hug Machine? Can anyone guess? Anita? Ask, ask, someone ask someone if they want to be hugged. That's very close. What I usually do is go, but what if those people and animals didn't want to be hugged? And then one of my kids goes, well, then you wouldn't hug them. You wouldn't hug them. It's a sweet book, right? Especially there at the end when we assume that that's the child's mom comes to scoop them up and give them a hug after they've spent their whole day hugging others. There's a really lovely message there about how we take care of other people and then we let other people take care of us. There's a lovely message about the value of good touch. And good touch from people we love and who love us is incredibly important. But the hug machine kind of stinks in terms of its representation of consent, which also makes it ideal for teaching consent, right? The child runs around hugging everyone and everything without any indication that those folks or creatures actually want the hugs. So I'm always clear to say, maybe they didn't want it and the hug machine should have stood down. This is one way that I try to teach consent in our family. Another is by always stopping if the kids say stop. If we're playing, tickling, or wrestling, when they cry out stop, we stop, right? Another is that I don't make them give hugs and kisses. At first, this bothered my dad, who definitely at least once said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, I had to hug and kiss my relatives at holidays, and I turned out fine. (laughs) But eventually, he got on board. I invite my kids to high-five or wave. They can hug if they want to. They can shake hands, whatever they feel comfortable with. They don't need to get close enough for hugs and kisses if they don't want to. They still need to be respectful and kind, but they don't have to make physical contact if they don't want to. And of course, the flip side of this is that they absolutely must accept if someone else doesn't want to make physical contact with them. I'm sure these lessons feel incredibly repetitive to my children, and even with repetition, they still don't get it right. And I'm sure they seem odd to some, but they're the foundation, for me at least, in my parenting of consent culture. They're the foundation of raising children who understand that their body is their own and other people's bodies are their own. And I have to say, there's like little better than hearing a four-year-old go, it's my body, you're not in charge of it, only I am. (laughs) Except maybe when the seven-year-old goes, my brother hugged me and he didn't have my consent. As they grow, the lessons in consent are going to continue to evolve, right? There's nuance. At the moment, it's a lot about good touch and bad touch, about safety, about telling when something isn't right. It's actually a lot of what's in our kindergarten to first grade um, owl, our whole lives curriculum that we teach here. It's about bodily autonomy, your own and respecting that of others. The nuances will get more complicated, but the basics are the same. My body is my body. Your body is your body. 
No one gets to touch or use or abuse our bodies without our consent. We believe in this as Unitarian Universalists because we believe that every single person has a worth and dignity unto themselves. And that themselves means the whole of who they are, their mind, their spirit, and their body. Those things aren't separable. So no matter what your body looks like or how your body operates, no matter its age or condition, no one has a right to your body. And none of us have a right to anyone else's. I recently realized, though, that there's this other layer to the question of touch and consent. And that's the layer of intent and impact. I cannot tell you how many times in the course of life with three children I hear the words, so-and-so hit me, followed closely by so-and-so shouting, I didn't mean to, and then the other one going, but you did, and it hurt, so you need to apologize. I'm sure that's an exchange you've heard, or even been part of, right? Children of a certain age know that even if they've hurt someone by accident, they still need to apologize for it. And frankly, this happens all day, every day in my own life, maybe in yours. Just yesterday, I bumped into somebody with my overloaded Costco cart. I had the twins and all the groceries, and I just I couldn't stop my cart in time. And I grazed this woman, and I immediately said, I'm sorry, and she said, oh, don't worry, it's fine. But it struck me again. My intent, obviously, wasn't to hit this woman with my cart. But there was an impact, no pun intended, there was an impact, however unintended, and so I apologized. And I assume that many of you, if not all, would have done the same thing. You would have been very unlikely to look up and simply say, I didn't mean to bump you. The sorry would have probably been like a reflex. When we get into someone else's space, bump them with our bag or accidentally step on their foot, when we make contact in some way that we know we aren't really supposed to, we're socialized to recognize the impact of our unintended contact and to apologize. We don't tend in those instances to feel defensive or precious about our action because the very interaction itself we can recognize ought never to have happened. And yet we continue to struggle with the question of intent versus impact in other ways. Just this past summer, um, the Reverend Alan Wells was here and preached a bit about intent and impact including a story he shared of being at a Buddhist retreat. Some of you may have been here for that service. At the beginning of the silent retreat, Reverend Wells recounts, they all agreed to refrain from touching each other without explicit permission. But a moment came during the retreat when he found himself needing to get down a hallway that was blocked by a woman of color who was facing the other way. It was a silent retreat. He tapped her on the shoulder and then went down the hallway and, and did what he needed to do, but found himself later remonstrated by the leader of the retreat. He shared in the sermon that the leader focused on his impact rather than his intent. At the end of the retreat, when they were allowed to offer final thoughts, Reverend Wells offered an apology for his impact. He said that it hadn't been his intent, but he realized he'd hurt her and he wanted to wish her well. And it was an excellent recognition that though the contact had not intended to harm, the contact itself had been intentional and he recognized that she experienced something in reaction to it. This was good. In his sermon, he goes on to say that he didn't need to apologize for his intention and also he didn't need to take responsibility for her hurt that her reaction was hers and that he's not responsible for it. 
He said that she interpreted the reaction in a certain way. She reacted in a certain way and that that wasn't his responsibility and that he experienced the episode as being called out and he used the word shamed. When I listened to the sermon, I really appreciated Reverend Wells' ability to find an apology for this woman when the time came at the end of the retreat, but I struggled with this piece about responsibility. He didn't intend to hurt her, but unlike the grocery cart situation, he did make an intentional choice about how to use his body in space, and that resulted in a certain experience for someone else. The idea that there's no shared responsibility here is what made me uncomfortable. I go back to thinking about my children. If one of them said, I didn't mean to hurt my brother when I took away his toy, or I didn't mean to hurt him when I called him a stupid idiot, or I didn't mean to hurt him when I pushed him away, I didn't intend it, I didn't mean to, so I'm not going to take any responsibility for his reaction or his feelings. You can imagine I would be having a pretty stern chat with that child. Because our intent matters, certainly, but our impact matters, too. When we impinge on someone's physical being, not even meaning to, in an obviously painful way, we have a much easier time understanding this. It's when our intentional choices of how to behave confront someone else's experience of our behavior that things get touchy. And I think where we get in the most trouble is when we encounter an impact that we believe is disproportionate to the action we took or to the intent that we had. So Reverend Wells knew he was going against the agreement of the group when he tapped on her shoulder. He was breaking the covenant they'd made, but he did it anyway because he believed that the tapping wouldn't have a negative impact because all he intended was to get past her down the hallway to do the dishes that he'd agreed to do. One could see that as a reasonable behavioral choice in the context of a silent retreat. And because he assumed it would be received in one way, he felt shamed when he was taken to task for having broken that initial foundational promise of the group and for the effect that it had on this woman. And he then did make an apology, but he holds to that idea that he's not responsible for her hurt. And that's the piece I want to get in on, right? Declaring himself not responsible for her hurt means he's absolved of thinking about how he might have miscalculated his action. Okay? It stays in the realm of, I did nothing wrong. I can offer compassion for her bad reaction, and I can wish her well, but I don't need to change anything about my behavior in the future. The message is then, there's nothing here for me to learn. My intent was good, that's all that matters. I don't need to grow or change or do anything differently. And that positioning is a positioning of privilege. My intent matters more than the impact of my actions is a statement of privilege that refuses to learn new information about interpersonal realities and that refuses to grow in understanding in order to create new and better ways of being. In a piece on the Psychology Today website, Dr. Mickey Cashtan addresses exactly this writing that she knows enough to be aware that one of the consequences of privilege and social power is that we have less capacity to see the effects of our actions. Privilege, by its nature, protects us from seeing or even having to care about the effects of our actions. This is true for whites in relations to blacks, for, women in or for men in relation to women, and similarly in many other settings of social divisions. 
So she goes on to recognize that often our reaction to being told that our actions have had an impact beyond what we intended is to feel shame. Shame because we believe that our very compassion and kindness is being questioned. And from there, we become defensive and insist repeatedly that our intention was good. She writes, this pull to defend, to focus on my intention being seen, is in itself part of the blindness of privilege. Since privilege masks the effects of our actions on others, we can continue to live with those effects because we don't know them. Learning about the effect is deeply unsettling as it calls into question our cherished beliefs about our own human decency. We go to the place of, I didn't mean to do it, so it's okay. I'm not a bad person. Kashan goes on to talk about exactly the point that story in the retreat brings up, the question of who creates the reaction. So Kashan affirms the idea that an individual is going to react how they will react, meaning a different person standing in that hallway tapped so someone could pass by might have had an entirely different reaction. And yet Kashtan asks, if we don't cause the feelings or experience of another person, does this mean we bear no responsibility whatsoever for what happens to them? I have, alas, seen people disengage from a person who is upset with them by claiming that this person's upset is all their own doing. Not my idea of what interdependence means. End quote. What Kashtan explains is that although, yes, each person will react or experience or make meaning in their own way, we live connected to each other in complex ways, and there are certain things that we are likely to interpret in certain ways. She writes, what we do and the culture and context within which we do it constrain the possible meanings that someone else can assign to our action. We don't interpret things in a vacuum. So in our house, we talk about the value of bodily autonomy. So overstepping that will get a certain reaction. My children know that. And to pretend otherwise, because their intent was different, is disingenuous at best and a sign of willful privilege at worst. If we understand ourselves as part of a cultural and social system, interdependent, then we have to take seriously, however uncomfortable it may make us, the impact of our actions, regardless of intent. I come from an Italian-American family. There's a lot of touch involved. My placing my hand on someone's shoulder may, in the context of my family, be completely reasonable, and my expectation for the response might reasonably be that it's going to be well-received. But everything is about relation and community and context. And even if my personal context teaches me that touching someone's shoulder isn't a big deal, my context, assumptions, beliefs don't get to win out over anyone else's. Just because I don't think it's a big deal, that doesn't mean that everyone around me has to conform to the idea that it's not a big deal. And the reality is that I'm called to be mindful of how my touching a shoulder is different when it's my child or when it's a stranger when it's someone compared to whom I hold more social privilege, when it's someone I have power over in my workplace. I don't have a right to anyone else's shoulder or a right to dictate how they're going to respond to my touch or my words or any of my actions. Ultimately, I can't control the reaction, but it is indeed our responsibility 
if we take seriously our notions of inter interdependent community, it's our responsibility to care about the impact and to learn from it. If I touch a stranger's shoulder and it makes them uncomfortable, then I want to know that because that information will nuance how and when I use the shoulder touch, not only with that person, but with others. Kashtan writes that being able to hear without defensiveness the impact of our actions helps us to improve our predictions of what the impact of our actions will be in the future. And that's part of the point. We live together. We are social creatures. We are, as Unitarian Universalists, theoretically people who want the liberation of all, the happiness and life and joy of all. We are supposedly people who want equality. Given those truths, we have a responsibility to each other to learn about each other so that the choices we make can better further the goals we seek. Dr. Kashtan ends her essay reflecting on a personal experience of being called out for the impact of something she did. She writes, now I know the likely interpretation of certain actions, I can no longer hide comfortably within my privileged innocence. I hope so much that I will have the capacity to integrate this knowledge and let it affect my own choices of how to act in the world, that I can expand my intention to being with, to include the effect, to include learning and considering what I am doing from a different vantage point than my own insular and internal one. Interdependence for me, she writes, means that all our actions affect others in ways we don't know, and that I want to learn more and more about these effects. This is the only hope I have for learning how I can align my own actions ever more fully with my desire to hold everyone's needs with care. Interdependence calls us to care. I cannot change how another will make meaning out of our interaction, but I can be as careful in my speech and in my touch as possible to ensure that there are as few misunderstandings as possible, as small a negative impact as possible, it isn't others' work to moderate their responses to match what I expect and what I want. It's all of our shared work to know ourselves deeply so that we can both act and react out of places of depth and clarity and understanding and love. But part of that, part of that interdependence, is trying to listen to how our actions were received without becoming defensive. When someone has the courage to share with us how our behavior affected them, our work is not to defend our behavior or to explain it away through good intention. Our work is to honor their experience and figure out how we might have made a different choice that might have helped create a different outcome. We need each other. We can't escape life without interacting with each other. The basic hope of liberal religion that yearns for a community that is truly interdependent and healthy and loving, and that teaches us that we are each ever learning. The basic hope of that religion is a mutual sense of responsibility and care that enables all of us, children and adults alike, to grow in love. May we use our actions, our speech, and our touch wisely, mindful of the interdependent nature of our living, aware that not just our intent, but also our impact matters. May we never shy away from the work of learning and growing, even when that work is hard, ever grateful for those with the courage to help us move forward.
And carefully and with a sense of responsibility for more than just ourselves, may we seek after a world of loving mutuality in which each person's wholeness of mind, spirit, and body is honored. So may it be. Please join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They are projected. We extinguish this flame. right in our hearts until we are together again. Use your body and your mind and your spirit wisely, my friends. Be courageous in speaking up. Be courageous in listening carefully. Be courageous in loving boldly. Go in peace.